Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Jesus Is. We will be looking at the seven I am statements that Jesus made. Here's Pastor Nick. Everybody, happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday. When I say he is risen, you say he's risen indeed. You ready? He's risen. risen Let's do it again. He's risen. risen Amen. Today we're celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ, having been crucified, died and was buried in a grave, but on the third day he rose again. And because he is alive, we know that we too can be raised to new life through him. In our time together this morning, we're going to take a look at what Jesus' resurrection means for you and me and why it's something we're celebrating. So would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's word. Lord, we thank you for this glorious truth, Lord, that you are alive. Help us understand this morning what that means for us, why it's not just a, a great historical fact, but it's something that actually affects the way that we live from this moment forward. Lord, help us that we would have this hope within us. And Lord, help us that as we understand your word, Lord, that we would respond appropriately. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to you from the Gospel of John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed." The title of today's message is, Jesus is the Resurrection and the Life. And here's what we're going to see in our study today. Every week, I try to summarize our message into one sentence that you can take with you as you go. You can write it down, put it in your notes, but also it'll function as our outline for studying the passage this morning. So here's our sentence for today. Because Jesus resurrected, you can have the hope of resurrection and the gift of life if you believe in him. So let's take that sentence, let's break it into a couple parts, and use it as our outline as we study this text. So first of all, because Jesus resurrected. The Gospel of John was written by a man named John, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. This book is his eyewitness account of the things that he saw and heard and experienced over the course of three years of spending every day with Jesus as part of that inner circle of the 12 closest disciples. And throughout this book, whenever John writes about himself, he never refers to himself as John or as me. He says he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was how John identified himself. He said, you know, one thing I know for sure is that Jesus loved me and I followed him. Out of all of Jesus' 12 disciples, John is the only one who was present when Jesus was crucified. 
All the other disciples, when Jesus was arrested, they fled in fear, thinking that perhaps just as Jesus had been arrested, they too would be next. And so they ran. And yet John, in his courage, he went to the cross and he watched. He was present there as Jesus was crucified. And what that means is that he saw the things that happened. He saw as the soldiers took a spear and stabbed Jesus through the heart just to be sure that he was dead. He watched as the soldiers removed Jesus' body from the cross and it was given to some men and they placed that body in a tomb and sealed it up. And Roman guards were positioned there to guard the body so that it wouldn't be tampered with. Multiple times over the course of three years of being with Jesus, Jesus had talked about his death. And whenever he, he told his disciples that he was going to die, he would also mention to them, but three days later, he would rise again. But see, whenever Jesus talked about his death and dying, the disciples kind of put their fingers in their ears and said, no, 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 no. They dismissed it. They ignored it because they wanted to focus not on Jesus' death. They wanted to focus on Jesus' life because they were convinced that he would be the next ruler of Israel. So whenever Jesus talked about his death, he said, no, no, no. Let, let's focus on your life, Jesus. And yet, much to their dismay, Jesus did die. And John had seen it. And perhaps lingering in the back of his mind was this memory, perhaps a latent memory of what Jesus had said, that if he died, he would rise again three days later. But they must have figured that surely when Jesus said that, he couldn't have meant that literally, right? I mean, lots of people say things and they mean it figuratively. Perhaps this was one of those situations where Jesus was using an idiom or a turn of, turn of uh, phrase because everybody knows once you're dead, that's kind of it, right? Like, you don't come back from that condition. It's not something you can recover from. But that morning, John was awakened by the frantic voice of Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' followers, who had been to visit Jesus' tomb that morning, but the giant stone which blocked the entrance had been rolled away, the guards were nowhere to be found, and the tomb was empty. John tells the story to explain. He says here in, 20, in John 20, he says, here's how I came to believe that Jesus really had risen from the grave. It happened because I went there. I looked in. I saw it with my own eyes. You see, everyone's initial assumption was that someone had come and robbed the grave, that someone had, grave robbers had come and taken Jesus' body away. But John, when he saw the empty tomb, when he saw the claws lying in the way that they were, he understood and he believed. He understood that when Jesus had been asked for proof that he really was who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And Jesus said, this is the proof that I will give you. When I die, I will rise again three days later. John understood as he looked into that tomb, Jesus actually meant that literally. And John believed in that moment. And maybe you wonder, well, how do we actually know? Like, how do we know that Jesus' body wasn't just stolen by grave robbers? The reason we know is because in the following verses, John tells us what happened next. Jesus, who was no longer dead, was walking around and meeting people. First, he meets with Mary, the woman who had come to the grave that morning. Right outside the tomb, as she was weeping, Jesus, standing right behind her, spoke to her and said, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Luke's gospel tells us that right after this, Jesus found two more of his disciples as they were walking on a path. Then we read here again in John chapter 20 that Jesus went to the place where the disciples were staying in Jerusalem and he joined them for dinner that evening. And then over the course of 40 days, Jesus met with his disciples, sometimes with hundreds at a time. It wasn't a private, secret thing. He, he was walking around in public in plain sight for everyone to see. That's exactly what you would expect to happen if someone really had risen from the dead. And here's what's interesting. These people who saw Jesus after he had risen, it had such a profound impact on them that it changed their lives. They became witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. They went around telling other people about this incredible thing that they had seen. And you know what they got in return for their claim that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead? Did they get invited on talk shows? Did they get book deals? Did they get rich and famous and popular? No, they got arrested and tortured and killed, and not just them, but their family members as well. They received absolutely no benefit from this claim that they had seen Jesus risen from the grave. Why would anyone in their right mind go around saying something which not only do they know is not true, but they know is going to get them killed? Who would do that? Only someone who knew that what they were saying was true because they had seen it with their own eyes. But you might wonder, okay, but why did it have such a profound effect on them? Why were they willing to give their lives for this issue, for this claim that Jesus was actually alive. Maybe you'd say, okay, maybe Jesus did rise from the dead, but what difference does that make for me living here in Colorado today? Well, friends, I'm here to tell you that it actually makes all the difference in the world, and I want to show you why it makes such a big difference. That brings us to the next part of our sentence. Because Jesus resurrected, you can have the hope of resurrection. You can have the hope of resurrection. Let me read you a letter that was sent by the Department of Health and Human Services uh, to someone who lived in Greenville County, South Carolina. The letter said this, your food stamps will be stopped effective March 1st because we received notice that you have passed away. You may reapply if your circumstances change. Now, someone in South Carolina is very optimistic, right? Like, but of course, uh, the problem with death is it's quite permanent. I like what the actress Brooke Shields said in an anti-smoking campaign in the 1990s. She said, smoking kills. And if you're killed, you've lost a very important part of your life. That's a good point. Well said, Brooke Shields. The problem that all of us face is that death is a reality. And sooner or later, it will come knocking at your door. No matter how much you exercise, no matter how much you avoid gluten and eat kale, right? Uh, eventually, the dark specter of death will overshadow you. It's not a question of if you will die. It is only a matter of when. And yet, death always seems to catch us by surprise. As often as I do funerals and I meet with family members, you know, grandma was like 300 years old, and everybody's surprised. How could this happen? She's gone. I can't believe it. It was like literally everybody else who's ever lived died, right? Like this shouldn't be a surprise. And yet we're always shocked by it. It always catches us by surprise, always shocks us. We're always scandalized by death. Why is that? Isn't it the most natural thing in the world? 
And yet there's something within us, deep down inside, that says, even if this is the way that things are, it's not the way that they're supposed to be. There's something about this that isn't right. In the Gospel of John, chapter 11, we read about a time when a friend and a follower of Jesus was sick to the point of death. It says in John, chapter 11, verse 1, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. See, Mary and Martha, we read about them in several places in the Bible. They were personal friends of Jesus and the disciples. They lived near Jerusalem, and oftentimes when Jesus and his disciples would go to Jerusalem, they would stay with Mary and Martha. They were close, and they were friends. It says, so verse 3, the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They're saying, Jesus, you love our brother. He's sick. He needs your help. For years, Jesus had healed the sick, people who were crippled, people who were blind, people who had ailments of all kinds. They came, and Jesus touched them and healed them. So surely, it would be no trouble for him to come and do that same thing for a friend. And so Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus is sick, asking Jesus to come and help him out and do a miracle and heal him, just as he's done for so many strangers. It says in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. Good. Awesome. Great. Now, since he loves them so much, surely that means that he dropped whatever he was doing. He rushed off to help them and to respond to their request, right? Well, it says in verse 6, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus is like, okay, got it. Lazarus is about to die. And then he's like, I'm going to go do something for two days. That's weird, right? That's strange. Jesus' friend is sick, and Jesus has the ability to fix the problem and heal this person. But instead of immediately going to help him, Jesus decides to wait and not come right away. And you might wonder, right? I thought that it said that Jesus loved him. How is that a loving thing to do? To just stand by and let somebody die? Then after this, verse 7, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. See, Jesus lived most of his life in the north of Israel, in Galilee. Judea is in the south of Israel where Jerusalem is, and Bethany is essentially a suburb of Jerusalem. So Jesus is saying, let's go see our friend Lazarus, who's sick. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. In other words, Jesus knew that as a result of his delay in going to see Lazarus, Lazarus had died. But Jesus had done this for a reason. It says in verse 17, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can sense the confusion in her words, can't you? Jesus, I thought that you loved us. I thought you cared if you really loved me, then why didn't you do what we asked you to do? You could have. You had the ability. If you loved me, then why did you let my brother die? Why did you let this happen and you stood by and didn't do something to stop it? How many of you have ever asked similar questions? If God really loves me, then why did he let that happen? If he could have stopped it, then why didn't he? If he could have prevented this, if he could have inter you know, interfered in this, why didn't he? But I want you to notice something. Jesus doesn't actually answer Martha's question. Instead, Jesus gives her a reason to have hope, even in the face of death. 
He says in verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You see, Jewish people believed in the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. And yet, even though Martha knew that this was true, it didn't seem to give her very much comfort in that moment about the loss of her brother. But, verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, I don't want to ruin the story for you. But not long after they have this conversation, Jesus is going to go, and he's going to perform one of the greatest miracles he ever performed. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But before he performs that miracle and raises Lazarus, first, Jesus wants to make sure that Martha's hope is in the right thing, that Martha's hope is well-placed, and that she's hoping in the right things. You see, up until this point, Martha's hope had simply been that Jesus would heal her brother's sickness and make the problem go away. The problem is that hope is not big enough. That hope for a temporary solution, a momentary solution, isn't big enough. You need a bigger hope than that, and here's why. If Jesus would have simply healed Lazarus of his sickness, if he would have fixed the problem in that moment, that would have only been a temporary solution. Eventually, Lazarus would have gotten sick with something else at some other point in time, and he would have died again. And then what? Even if Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, which he's going to do, eventually Lazarus is going to die again. You see, Martha's focus up until that point had only been on a temporary solution. That's all she wanted, just a temporary solution that would take away the pain of the moment. But Jesus wants to give her a hope that is so much greater, a hope that can sustain her no matter what this life brings her way and throws at her, because it's a hope that goes beyond this life. Look at what Jesus says. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus isn't talking about a temporary solution to the problems of this life. He's talking about a permanent solution to the problems of sin and death. And he's saying, I am that solution. The resurrection of the dead isn't just some far off, pie in the sky, silver lining. No, he says, no, no, no. I am the resurrection and the life. Come to you to meet your greatest need. Not just a temporary fix, not just a band-aid on the problems of life, but the one who has come to abolish the curse of sin and death forever. So that even if your physical body dies, you will live and never die. Jesus is saying that he is the solution to the ultimate problem. He came to put an end to death forever. And he asked Martha, do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe. And now that that's settled and Martha's hope is fixed securely in the right place, in the ultimate hope of eternal life, now Jesus is ready to perform this miracle, which although it's only a temporary solution, is still a glorious display of God's love and God's power. And so in the following verses, we see how Jesus first weeps with those who are mourning the death of Lazarus. And then he makes his way to the tomb and orders the stone to be removed. And he calls Lazarus to come out of the grave. And he does. It was a miracle, one of Jesus' greatest miracles. But it was merely a preview 
of the truly greatest miracle that Jesus would ever perform when he himself would rise from the grave, not, to, not just temporarily, like with Lazarus who died again, but permanently to never die again. Jesus was the first of those raised from death to everlasting life in order to make a way for us to have everlasting life as well. That brings us to the next part of our sentence here. Because Jesus resurrected, you can have the hope of resurrection and the gift of life. The hope of the resurrection isn't only something that gives us hope for the future, right? Beyond this life. No, no, no. The hope of the resurrection also gives us strength to live this life here and now. You know, it's been said that life is kind of like a stationary bicycle. Every generation gets on the, the stationary bicycle of life, and they pedal as hard as they can, and we sweat, and we toil, we wear ourselves out, we pedal, pedal, pedal as hard as we can until we eventually get tired and die and just fall off the bike. Then the next generation gets on the bike, and they climb on, and they pedal as hard and as fast as they can, they sweat, and they toil, and expend all their energy until they eventually die and fall off the bike. And then the next generation gets on and they do the same thing. Pedal, sweat, toil until they die and fall off. But it's a stationary bicycle. We're just spinning our wheels, but we're not actually going anywhere. We're not getting anywhere. All this work, all this toil, all this sweat, all this energy, we put in all this effort. And where are we getting? We're not going anywhere, right? Think about it. Have we really progressed as human beings? Are we really happier than previous generations? Sure, we have fancier toys and electric cars. We have smartphones and YouTube. But all the studies show that these gadgets that maybe make our lives easier, they don't actually make us fundamentally happier. In fact, they lead to greater forms of isolation, which result in more depression. So all of our labor, all of our toil, it hasn't fundamentally improved the human condition. We still have the same problems, but we've just got better toys to entertain ourselves as we ride the stationary bicycle of life and wait to die. Is that all life is? And maybe you say, Nick, that's depressing. I hope it's depressing. It should be. Listen, if that's all life is, just basically entertaining ourselves as a distraction to avoid the hurt and the pain of this world as we wait for our eventual death, that is depressing. But friends, that, I'm here to tell you today that that's not all that life is meant to be. It's meant to be so much more. God wants your life to be full of joy and full of meaning and purpose, but here's the thing. As long as you only live for yourself, if you live for yourself, your life really does have no meaning or purpose beyond yourself. And think about this. If you live for yourself, then when you're gone, everything you ever lived for will be gone with you. It will die with you. But listen, if this life is not all there is, if there is hope beyond the grave, and what awaits you beyond this life is that in which your deepest longings and greatest hopes will be fulfilled, you know what that does? It sets you free to live as a truly free person. It sets you free to really live here and now. You see, the hope of the resurrection sets you free from fear. It gives you the strength to persevere when things get tough in this life because you know that any suffering, any difficulty you face in this life, it's only momentary and the best is yet to come. The hope of the resurrection sets you free to serve and give generously. 
It allows you to hold on to everything you have with an open hand. Rather than hoarding treasures here on earth, you can be radically generous because you know that whatever you have here on earth is only temporary, but it can be used for God's greater purposes, and it can have an impact for eternity that goes beyond this life. The hope of the resurrection, it sets you free from placing unrealistic expectations on people or things. How many of you have ever done that? You put unreal, you, you looked at something and you hoped it, and you expected it to do something for you that it couldn't do and it didn't do. Maybe you look to another person and you put an expectation on them to do something for you that they were just incapable of doing. So when you have the hope of the resurrection, what you understand is that the fulfillment you desire, it will be yours but not in this life. And what that allows you to do is it allows you to have realistic expectations of people and things without becoming cynical. The hope of the resurrection sets you free to forgive and show grace. It sets you free from the need to be recognized and praised by people because you know that God who sees all will reward you properly and fully in heaven. A good example of how the hope of the resurrection shapes the way you live here and now is found in the book of Job. The book of Job tells a story of a man named Job who was very wealthy. But then through a series of unfortunate events, he lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his health. He lost all of his money and all of his property. And yet in spite of all of his suffering, we read that Job never cursed God. And later in the book, Job explains to us what was that hope that kept him afloat when everything was going wrong, when all of those hardships he faced? What was it that kept him going? He says this. Here was the hope that he had. He said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold not another. My heart faints within me. Job believed in the hope of the resurrection, that God was his redeemer, and that no matter what happened to him in this life, God would raise him up to new and everlasting life with him. And that hope, that promise was enough to keep Job going, even in the face of hardship. And that same hope, that same promise is ours in Jesus. Jesus has opened the way for us to be resurrected because he overcame death. And that hope gives strength, purpose, and direction to our lives here and now. And that brings us to the final part of our sentence today. Because Jesus resurrected, you can have the hope of resurrection and the gift of life if you believe in him. If you believe in him. Do you remember what Jesus said to Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, what Jesus says twice there is that the promise of resurrection and eternal life in Jesus belongs to those who believe. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Listen, to believe in Jesus doesn't just mean to believe that Jesus existed. Obviously, Martha knew that Jesus existed. She was talking to him. It, to believe in Jesus doesn't just mean that you believe that the stories the Bible says about Jesus are true. Again, Martha believed those things. She knew them to be true. She had seen them with her own eyes. So what is, it, what is Jesus telling her to do as he says, believe in me? The belief that Jesus is talking about here means to trust in him. 
It means that when you look to him, you place your hope in him, that what he has done for you is enough to save you because of what he did. You can have hope beyond the grave. It's to trust in that promise and in his actions. And notice how this interaction ends here in this chapter. Jesus turns to her and he makes it personal. He says, Martha, do you believe? Do you believe? Friends, let me make it personal for you here today. Do you believe? You. Have you put your trust in Jesus? Have you placed your hope in him because of what he's done for you? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to die for your sins so you could be forgiven, so you could have a relationship with God, and he rose again so that you can have everlasting life. That is his gift to you. And the way you receive that gift is by putting your faith, not in yourself, but in him and what he did to save you. That's what it means to believe. It means to trust in what he did to save you. If you have done that, then you can have confidence because Jesus resurrected that through him, you can have the sure and certain hope of the resurrection and the gift of life. Back in John chapter 20, I want you to see what Mary did when she realized that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. First, it says that Mary, she stopped weeping. Remember, she had been weeping. She ceased from her weeping. And then the next thing she did, it says that she went and she shared this good news with others. See, that's what happens when you really understand the significance of Jesus' resurrection. Your sorrows and sadness are replaced with joy and hope, and now you have a mission and a message to go and share with the world. So may we respond on this Easter as they did on that first Easter Sunday by believing and trusting in Jesus. And as you believe and trust in him, may your sorrows be overshadowed by hope, and may that hope give meaning and direction to your life here and now. Because Jesus resurrected, you can have the hope of resurrection and the gift of life if you believe in him. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great hope that we have in you because you came. And not only did you die for our sins, but you overcame death, the great enemy. Lord, we thank you that you did that for us. You did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And thank you that in you, there is hope for resurrection and life. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters and my friends here today. Lord, help us that we might respond as these first Christians responded on that first Easter. That we might see and that we might believe. And that in believing, we would cease from our sorrows and have hope that gives power for this life here and now. Lord, we pray that you would make our joy complete this Easter as we believe in you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.